Hello, and welcome to Building Our Future with me, Bert Broadhead. Today, we're joined by an expert in smart buildings who's been at the forefront not only of retrofitting the built environment with smart technology, but also in adapting that technology to aid the transition to COVID-secure buildings and facilities management. My guest today is Tim Panagos, CTO of MicroShare, leaders in IoT integrations for infection control, occupancy monitoring, and predictive cleaning. Tim, big welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bert. Uh, and you're joining us from um, just outside Boston. That's correct. On a presumably chilly morning. It's chilly but sunny, so uh, spirits are high. So I, I imagine the last 12, or well, certainly nine months, have been a, a pretty busy period for you guys. Have you been seeing growth in customer base or, or in terms of the services you're being asked to provide your existing customers? Yeah, indeed. 2020 really was a whirlwind uh, for us. And I think it's a case classically of being in the right place at the right time. Um, leading into 2019, we were really focused on what um, what you've covered with other guests in terms of smart building offerings. Um, but as we entered into 2020 and the quarantine obviously um, hit the world, uh, we really were able to kind of pivot our technology and then add contact tracing um, to the portfolio. And that really was the topical star of uh, this past year. And uh, integrating that into our other sort of IoT solutions to give people a more complete picture of their work environments, um, certainly that was really the, the big focus. And indeed, we grew into new kinds of spaces. We'd already been into what I would call non-traditional um, commercial spaces, hospitals and universities and campuses of that kind. Um, and then contact tracing really has propelled us even further into things like manufacturing, resource development, you know, mining, um, et cetera. So it's been a really busy year. And our, our clients at the moment focused on the obvious one of contact tracing, building cleanliness, um, and, and kind of the health and safety aspect more than anything else. Yeah, I think that's been the overriding uh, need for 2020. And even as we look into 2021, we don't really seeing it slowing down yet um, because even if we all have, or if most of us have access to um, vaccines, there's still the need to reassure people who are in the space that they are in a, a place that's going to mind their wellness. Right. So we hear a lot of feedback from our end users that, you know, Hey, it's not about me. It's about my family and friends. I'm really looking for my employer to, help me ensure that I'm not a risk to my community. And so we do see a lot of that, right? Contact tracing um, may fade out, but cleaning, air quality, um, these things that are associated to viral spread, I think are hot topics. And not only are they hot topics for the employer, but they're hot topics for the, the actual humans that interact in the space, right? So the, the people who show up to work and the customers that transit through it. Is that coming through in, in requests from the end user to say, fine, you're asking me to come and work in this building, prove that you're doing what you can to make it an acceptable risk for me to do that. Yeah, I think it is. Um, where we have people who occupy buildings who have choices, and we're talking mostly about knowledge workers here, 
Um, there definitely is an upwelling and there has been, you know, this is a, cur- a current trend, right? Um, this is really just a spike in that current trend of people wanting more information, expecting more information to be at their fingertips about their environment, right? They, they come through traffic to get to work. Um, they've got uh, many choices about how to measure and experience and, and mitigate the risks of traffic when they arrive inside of the building. Um, all of a sudden, it's a black box of no more data. So, you know, I, I think their expectations set around the outside of the world have now translated into the workplace. And this has absolutely accelerated that, right? Really uh, put it on steroids um, because now there's obviously a very compelling event that, p- that people want this kind of information. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the places that we deal, healthcare, manufacturing, um, these are places where people really don't have the choice not to show up for work, and they have been showing up for work um, throughout the uh, throughout the, the, the crisis. And um, for them, I think in many cases, they're used to being underserved and expect that the data isn't available. And so um, we're really trying to push that message out that the data is available. We can give you information that will reassure you and give you the tools to make better decisions about you know your own well-being. One of the things we suddenly see in the UK, and I imagine there's a trend elsewhere, is people still being reticent to share data, whether it comes to contact tracing and what have you. Is there an ongoing battle to kind of ensure that everyone engages with the technology? How do you do that? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we've seen now global uh, adoption, or at least global attempts at adoption over the last 12 months. And um, it's interesting how it evolved over time. You know, there was a lot of skepticism early on, particularly when we had a lot of press about, you know, governments um, using mobile phone apps and everything else to do contact tracing. And I think you see a steady uh, bubbling of uh, distrust, right? That this is in fact surveillance and uh, might violate um, personal freedoms. And that's something that we care a lot about. I thought a lot about this in my career. Um, It's really the core of RIP is how to manage personal privacy with data, because I think it's the fundamental of uh, the fundamental substrate of all the things we're doing with telematics is ensuring that the ecosystem is well looked after with regards to privacy, intent, participation, um, including monetization, um, if that's where the ecosystem wants to go. So we've seen, you know, skepticism. Um, One of the areas where we have made headway, I think, where sort of smartphone-based contact tracing hasn't, is where uh, if I give you a wearable, you know, a a bracelet or a badge to carry around, um, then you can very clearly know when you're being uh, contact traced because you can leave that in the uh, in the glove box of your car. You can leave it in your desk when you go home, and you know that you've limited the exposure of that surveillance at least to that work environment. It makes it quite tangible versus you know something that is uh, intimately riding around with me throughout my life, my cell phone, um, where it's you have to kind of trust that they've either turn that off or that they're not looking on off hours and things like that. I think the wearable. Although it's another thing to another gadget to include in your life as a as an individual, at least you you can wrap it in tinfoil. At the end of the day, we actually have uh, have clients that do that um, provide tinfoil, uh, which you know effectively blocks it, so you can know that you're limited in terms of that scope. And I think that has um, gone a, a fair amount away because it's it's a tangible step to ensure your own privacy. Do people have a choice whether they 
opt for the wearable or just give up their cell phone data? Yeah, at this stage, we have steered completely away from the cell phone aspect. We have built sort of the platform to be omnivorous. Um, so the idea that eventually people who want to have a blended uh, solution can use that. But really, um, I think people have been, this is such a new technology set. It's such a new um, cultural phenomenon that people really haven't wanted to complicate the picture. So we've got, I think you see either we're smartphone approaches or we're wearable approaches. And I think we've yet to really see that blended approach. I think in the fullness of time, if, you know, if we still need this five years from now, I think it's inevitable that you will see the blended approach. But I think people are trying to wrap their head around one or the other, learn what it means, and then go forward. So we really haven't had much call for both. Uh, although I think at the end of the day, the data you get from both of these is very similar. And um, there's no reason not to you know, focus and give people choice and blend it together. People talk about the last nine months in the pandemic being a catalyst for, for all sorts of trends. And we, we've already talked about one, people's comfort with data sharing, et cetera. Uh, and, and smart buildings clearly sit at the, the kind of um, interface of the physical and the digital. How do you think the last nine months is going to impact the adoption of smart technology within buildings? Well, I think it's, um, it's a tale of kind of two parts. One is, I think, in many industries where the facilities management presence in their spaces has been challenged by quarantine, it's really raised the question of, do I really know what's happening in my buildings when I'm not there? Um, in fact, do I really know what's happening when I am there? And this is particularly true in, you know, large, sprawling um, real estate holdings, right? So that's kind of where we have specialized, so not single building, but, you know, portfolio, um, campus size, um, large tenant occupiers or large, large owners. And um, I think that's accelerated this idea that I can't just get away with managing by walking around. I really, I need information about what's happening with my, you know, major capital assets, um, even when I'm not there, maybe particularly when I'm not there. So I think that need has increased and the comfort with technology has increased because everybody's doing business here now on, on Zoom um, with their smartphones necessarily. So I think that's half of them. Has the motivation changed? So whereas before some owners may have been listening to their end users and saying, hey, we need to adopt this to improve wellness, etc. Whereas now there's more of an imperative that if you almost if you don't do this, uh, you, are, you are facing a potential employer liability for not properly protecting your employees? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a hot topic, certainly in the U.S. The case law around liability uh, for COVID and infection really is fairly untested and really is going to take another year, frankly, before a clear answer comes out about really what will the um, building owner, what will the employer bear in terms of accountability for their actions or inactions. So I think there's a lot of interest in that very question. Um, not being a legal scholar, I won't opine, but what's pretty clear, I think, is that the legal liability, the, even the legislative or um, a jurisdictional um, impact, the human impact is pretty clear. And I think the signal is already coming through. People will choose to work in places and for employers that can demonstrate that they have their best interests in mind that it is indeed a partnership between the employer and employees. Um, and I think that's already coming through. 
And I think if to the extent that the workforce is mobile, they will choose to go um, where the wellness is a factor. And I think that's pretty important that people won't forget that pandemics are possible and they won't forget the efforts that their employers and their and the places they uh, live, work, shop, etc., whether they were taking in uh, taking this quite seriously, whether they were being successful at managing it or not, and I think that's part of the the current and future trend for real estate is this awareness isn't just going to fade out. And uh, and we talk about smart buildings, and I suppose the inference there is that there are there are dumb buildings, um, and the reality is probably that most assets sit somewhere in the middle of a spectrum or one way or another. Yeah. What, what you guys at Microshare have just raised five million odd odd dollars for, for expansion and growth. When you were targeting new business lines, are you more interested in taking new buildings and, and trying to move them towards truly smart assets or, or retrofitting existing assets? Yeah, I would say that we really are building a uh, an offering towards the retrofit space, the um, semi-smart or um, or non-smart buildings, because uh, you know IoT is a big umbrella. Actually, you know it covers everything from smart TVs to you know tiny button-sized wireless sensors, and we tend to be on the wireless sensor side. So very low disruption, easy to deploy, battery-operated, long-range. Um, very easy to, um, to to stick up. And we've chosen to go that way, not because we can't pull data out of BACnet or you know the, the smart building infrastructure that newer buildings have. Um, we can, and where they exist, we probably should. But one of the key things about large portfolios is you're going to have new buildings, you're going to have um, old buildings, you're going to have things in the middle. And what is important about managing at scale is consistency of that signal. And um, uh, Pandit described this idea of uh, you know data chaos is really the state of art right now in um, and how these things are deployed. Frankly, not just in the built space, but in the rest of the world as well. We have silos of data. We have proprietary formats, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the kind of problem that we knew we needed to tackle is how to get the data to be consistent so you can use consistent analytics to derive consistent insights that apply regardless of the age, location. Um, style of your built space so that you can really kind of manage at, at scale and consistency. You can compare two buildings against each other. You know, one was built in the 1800s, one was built uh, just two days ago. Um, you know, I think that's the problem that um, our customers are really struggling with. And so what we actually find is not only will you put these wireless sensors up um, in your old space, we find people putting them in their new smart buildings as well. Because even though I could get the data from that building from the newer systems, the data would be different than the data that I'm measuring from the old buildings. So having a sort of ubiquitous ability to gather telematics and bring that information together, I think is really the, the killer app. So we really think mostly about that, you know, retrofit, but, you know, it bleeds right into, you know, the whole portfolio, I think. Obviously, the conversation's been a little bit skewed at the moment because of COVID and, I suppose, an emphasis on contact tracing and, and predictive cleaning is presumably another another focal point at the moment. In um, more normalized times, when you think about a retrovert towards a smart building, what, what are the, the fundamental 
infrastructure building blocks, both both physical and uh, cloud based. What we see, you know, if you look at typical use cases, smart cleaning um, has been um, a real big topic, not just last year um, around COVID, but beyond, because uh, you know we see building managers really being challenged to um, increase tenant satisfaction while also cutting. Uh, their costs, right? So the amount that they're being granted to do cleaning and things um, is is decreasing, but expectations are going up. And so doing more with less, I think, has been a theme for the last, you know, uh, three years at least. And so feeding into that. So what what goes into a real smart cleaning scenario? Um, occupancy, knowing how people use the space. Um, when are they there? How often are they there? Um, because simply, you know, people equals dust and dust equals cleaning, right? So knowing how the space is being used on any, any given day will allow you to kind of not only clean on demand, which is something that we see um, definitely um, rising in importance with, um, with uh, quarantine response, but um, it becomes, I think, a habit that we'll have to keep going because it is more efficient, right? So let me clean where the tents are likely to complain before they complain. Um, so we've got occupancy and air quality and um, things like motion, door open and close, and incorporating uh, feedback devices as well. You know, those uh, smiley face buttons I'm sure you've seen in uh, various places. Um, folding all of that data together is really what we're doing at MicroShare so that you can get a holistic picture of how that whole operation is working. Um, and um, when you fold it together, you get some really unique insights, I think, that can optimize the way that you're deploying your maintenance resources um, to increase the tenant experience. And then, you know, our real goal is, you know, that that's real kind of brass tacks. It can save money, improve experience. Um, who doesn't want both of those things um, in this um, infection-aware time period we're in, of course, it also allows you to show that you're treating this quite seriously, you're reacting to people's usage, and you're actively managing uh, for cleanliness and, and reduce exposure. But that also feeds into the tenant experience in a real way. You know, tenant experience apps have been, um, you know, I think hot over the last couple of years. Um, and so what we see is you know, our mission is to provide good quality data to all of these uses. So you deploy this infrastructure, I use it to manage my cleaning routes, but I can also feed into my tenant experience apps and everything in between, right? So we've got wellness and we've got, um, you know, hard cost savings. Um, at the end of the day, managing that particularly at scale is really about consistent data, um, good quality data. And um, that's that's kind of what we're targeting. So in, in terms of the, the quality of data, are there emerging data standards in terms of how one manages this and so you, so that you, you are able to feed into these external kind of complementary apps? Yeah, I mean, there are some standards, but I think that this is one of the areas where real estate in general is behind the rest of the market spaces um, in, I think, being a little bit late to the IT game. Um, that's really my background. I came not out of prop tech, but out of um, uh, pure IT world. And we kind of looked at, you know, I started my early career building software for banks. And, um, you know, that's a uh, 
it's hard to feel really good about that. Uh, <laughs> it's like I'm, I wrote banking software, but th- th- that is what I did. Um, but you see these other industries where they were just forced to standardize data over time. And the benefits have been immense, um, both to the companies and to the consumers, because data transportability creates choice. It um, encourages competition, um, innovation, um, and I and I think the built space needs to do the same thing. So we think the yeah the the data standards need to come up to speed. We need to pick them. There's a lot of talk in the IT uh, the prop tech space about ontologies. This is kind of you know um, nerdy stuff, but at the end of the day, it's really using common language to describe our built spaces which can be quite complex. So we wrestle with this on a daily basis, you know, talking about digital twinning built space, you know, just the simple insight that the part of the building that touches the ground is called the ground floor <laughs> labeled with G in the U S and it's labeled the first floor in the UK. Well, in, in France, I think we, we, we normally go for ground. All right. All right. So, um, uh, part of the challenge there is that humans adapt to that pretty easily. Um, they're not, really confused when they walk into the elevator more than a few seconds they 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 can figure out where they are and what buttons to push Um, but a computer is completely useless at that Um, and so making that consistent is really the key for somebody who's got certainly global holdings you know how are my what's the occupancy level of the floors that touch the touch the ground you know one of the things we've seen consistently is the bathrooms that touch the ground (laughs) if you want to say it that way are require much more attention than any other bathroom. Um, and that's probably obvious, but you see that globally, you see it consistently ac- across um, use. But in order for the system to make that um, insight available to operators, we first have to have that common um, language to describe the built space in the first place. So I think that is a hot topic, data formats, but then the format isn't enough. We need to also have common language we can use to describe these things, tagging. So we spend a lot of time on what I will call taxonomy rather than ontology. And there's you know work being done in both, both of those camps. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's how do we describe the physical using the digital? Um, because the computer doesn't make these intuitive leaps to say, oh, this, this must be the same thing. Is that consistency made easier with the use of a, a visual digital twin? Would you still ultimately need that, that common language? I think so. You know, humans are visual beings, I think. So making data tangible does involve good visualization. Um, so, you know, we generally see our customers go through a journey and it starts with, I just have to see the data. And that usually involves graphs, right? Making raw data visible to people and um, graphs usually get that job done. Then how do I trust the insights? The analytics are spitting out insight. Do I trust these insights, right? Does it fit my gut? Can I go out and look and see? Um, We had a customer who was seeing occupancy spikes in one of their buildings on a floor in in the middle of the night and said, surely these sensors must be um, malfunctioning. But when they actually sent somebody at 2 a.m. onto the fifth floor on Wednesdays, they found that that's where their cleaning crew gets together to have their weekly uh, get-together for their their, their meal uh, between their, uh, their, their, their night breaks. And uh, nobody knew that was happening. And 
Um, what what action did they take on that basis? I'm, I'm not sure, but you know they had to like well. It, Clearly, you're telling me something weird here. This isn't real. And then they go and confirm. So that's the second step. And then the third step is to get on with it, which is, you know, the data is not what you should be operating your business on. People will discard the visualizations and then they'll want to get to how do I operationalize this? How do I build it into my normal day? Um, because we already have too much data, honestly, and we just don't, humans don't make good use of it. So visual, I think, is a good way of operationalizing. Um, I often say, you know, people don't manage their business with dashboards. They manage it with alerts. Tell me when I need to go do a thing. And then, you know, I, I think that's really important. And then can you visualize on floor plans? Can you visualize in 3D? I think uh, floor plans are definitely technology that's here. A lot of apps make that available. There's early work being done in augmented reality and virtual reality. Will we get to that stage? Um, where that becomes truly useful, I'm not sure. I think there's some specialized areas, but but personal opinion is that that kind of comes down to um, single source of truth. So if, if if you get to that point where you can bring in you know all of your data sources, then then great. But that that remains a a massive challenge. And if you've just got a visualization which is only showing you one data flow, yeah, that's exactly right, Bert. And I think that's really kind of our core mission is that common source of truth. Um, like I said, being an omnivorous data platform, uh, being able to bring all that data consistently format it and then make it available analytically. Um, that's really what I spend my day worrying about. Uh, honestly, it's, it's not visualization. Is the constant, um, need, need to kind of explain and teach, um, tiring. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and I know I've had a couple of these conversations and, and it, it is such a, um, a difficult industry because it sits at the, the, the kind of um, the corner of facilities manage management, occupiers, owners, and no one's really taking ownership for it. And it seems to be kind of falling between different cracks. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right, Bert. The challenge and the opportunity is the ecosystem is complex and has different incentives, um, different levels of awareness. Um, is it tiring? Sometimes, but I will say, I think that I get some of the joy that a teacher must get because when you see the light come on in people's eyes, when they finally understand, I, it, it's gratifying, right? So yeah, sometimes you feel like you're pushing uphill, but um, there's been no um, customer um, prospect so far that we haven't gotten up over the hill where they're now rolling down. That, 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 is, a, that is an elation um, as a, as a provider, as a teacher, as a advisor that, that I really enjoy. So I, I do find that it is difficult. You have to be patient. You have to meet all of those constituents where they actually are in their own journey, um, and get better and better at describing it in their own language to, to whatever extent you can, uh, how this is going to benefit them, where they are today, where they're going to be in the future and, um, helping them up over that, that curve. Um, but I've been around the industry long enough. Um, prop tech isn't unique in this. Um, the rest of the world has come up this curve as well. And back in the uh, uh, early 90s, uh, really as internet technology was catching on, we went through the same thing in the, in the financial industries that were already fairly sophisticated with um, digital technologies. They were just mainframe people. So there was still you know, this pushing up. So 
I don't think that prop tech has to apologize in any way. Um, I don't think they should feel embarrassed by it. It's really uh, incumbent upon the technologists to uh, really bring it down and, and, and help them up. Um, and I think once they can, what's exciting to me is that there's so much value available to the entire, um, frankly, entire world if real estate can be managed more efficiently, more effectively, um, at scale, resource utilization, um, human well-being. I mean, the value of getting uh, the, the bulk of people up over that mountain is, is massive. Funnily enough, not, not for everyone, but a lot, a lot of people working from home at the moment I think we've all had just a bit of a bit of time to kind of really think about um, you know what environments you work well in, what what makes work impossible, whether that's yeah. distractions, uh, lights, space, whatever. And I think everyone just will be slightly more attuned into their working environments as and when we we get back into an office. Hundred percent, Bert. And I, and I think this has also accelerated the trend of certainly in knowledge workspaces. Um, where blended work environment is going to be the norm even more, right? So um, I'm being in a tech space. We've had the work from home for decades now as as an option, and you just have seen that percentage of work from home increase, increase, increase. Our own company, MicroShare, has been virtual from the beginning. I've got people all over the world, and we're you know the the quarantine was really um, almost a, a non-event uh, for us as a work environment. Cause this is the way we do business. We, you know, we're on video, we're on audio. We know how to have a synchronous and asynchronous. Um, and, uh, and that's been creeping out throughout the rest of the world because a, it really, I think impacts the quality of life of your workers. So it becomes a, a benefit. So I think one of the key things about data and the built space is really accelerating the awareness that people will use blended work experiences um, in the future, blending home, blending coffee shop experiences, blending, you know, traditional office environments, mixing and matching to fit um, really our preferences, but ultimately our preferences often align to performance um, and outcomes, right? Because the space is really where we collaborate. It's not, you know, walls for walls sake, it's walls to bring humans and assets they need to do business together in one place and so I think making the built space more agile is really what this, you know, digital twinning is all about, right? It's the OT and IT coming together. Um, IT has been accelerated for decades, right? You see how quick software has evolved. You see how much uh, innovation there has been in the pure IT space, um, evolution from internet to social media, that's uh, mobile, blah, 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 blah. but it's easy because bits are easy to move around, um, you know, they're, they're cheap and, and easy and fast. Uh, the built space isn't uh, physical. Atoms are harder to manipulate. But that's what digital twinning, I think, ultimately is about, is speeding up the physical, speeding up the built space so that innovation um, change is easier, faster. And then ultimately, it's about adapting to that market's um, changing needs, right? And so the seven-year lease and the... Uh, requirements that go along with that, I think, have to be exploded, liquefied, and uh, that real estate move at the closer to the pace of bits. Maybe it never will be quite, you know, digital speed, but speeding that up, I think, is about meeting this, you know, radical wave of new, new expectations that uh, the people are going to return to work with. 
so Tim, you, you clearly have a, an optimistic frame of mind. Can you can you give us a um, how how quickly is is all this kind of transitioning going to take? What, what, where do you where do you see the world of smart buildings in two years' time? Well, I think the reality is, even as an optimist, I see it going slowly. Um, but hopefully, people beginning the journey soon. Right. So I think. You know, in 2019, we saw, yeah, okay, the journey is a three-year journey, let's say, for, for most folks. And we'll start, you know, five a year. And, okay, next year we'll start another five, and they'll start their three-year journey. I think the story of 2021 will be, instead of five people starting, there will be 50. Maybe there might be 500 starting all at once. It'll still take that time to come up to speed. Uh, I think the reality is we can only go so fast. Um, I've just seen consistently uh, across geography, across education level backgrounds, people need to go through the journey, see the data, experience the insights, and then figure out how to operationalize. We've tried to push that, speed it up. There's only so much optimization you can you can do because at the end of the day, they're the subject matter experts and they need to figure out how to incorporate the new technologies. I think it is going to take, you know, uh, two to three years before you really start seeing the benefit of the um, OTIT blend, digital twinning, the speeding up. But I do think it'll happen um, with a larger cohort. And that, I think, can be reassuring because I think one of the problems of 2019 was if you're only five this year that's figuring this out, you feel kind of lonely. Is this stupid? Am I making a mistake? <laughs> right. Well, you're, you're right. You're front running the the, uh, the kind of capex and exactly. That's risky. So Tim, um, Mike Share got uh, offices around the world. Link to your websites in in our show notes. What, what's the best way for people to get in touch? Yeah. So um, please do come to the website www.mikeshare.io, and um, if you want to reach out and have a conversation with me, I am on Twitter. You can um, hit me up uh, at. Um, Microshare underscore CTO. Uh, it's good to see other dot IOs around there. No one, no, we're, we're the same. No one knows what it is. It's uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, hopefully the prop tech will figure that out, right? Yeah, Indian Ocean apparently. Um, a couple of questions to to finish things up on. So, firstly, could you please recommend a uh, a book that's influenced your professional thinking? Absolutely. Uh, I might take this a different direction than most. Um, I want to introduce people to Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom by Cory Doctorow. It is a speculative fiction, aka science fiction book that, um, that I read oh, about 15 years ago and takes a really radical view of what sort of postmodern real estate, um, post-monetary human life might look like. And um, it's, a, it's a crazy story, but um, it could be eye-opening for folks. Very left field. Very interesting. Thank you. I shall be checking that out. Um, hmm. And which technology do you think has the greatest potential to change the status quo in your field of work? I think end user apps, I'll use the example of Waze, um, are really exciting to me because what I see them doing is providing value to people by collapsing a lot of complicated data together in a way that allows humans to alter their behavior voluntarily to uh, improve their own lives and at the same time um, balance uh, societal good. 
And I think that is really what excites me about being a collector and purveyor of consistent data. I want to feed those kind of apps so that people can make better decisions about their wellness, about their, you know, livelihoods, about their, um, you know, their work-life balance. Um, and, you know, I think that's really where the future of, um, of data and, and technology needs to go. Uh, and final question, which is what is your favorite building? So I think that my favorite building would be what's called Building 10, um, which is also known as the Great Dome of MIT. It's this neoclassical um, uh, building that sits kind of in the middle of a chaotic environment um, at, on, the, on the college campus at MIT. And um, it kind of stands alone as this sort of classical representation of um, a bedrock of old school um, classic human thinking with the chaos of newness and discovery uh, wrapped around it. But what, what happens inside building 10? It sounds, uh, sounds top secret. Actually it, it completely is not. It houses a library and um, you know, this great sort of rotunda underneath this dome um, not very much goes on actually in building 10. It's really all of the octopus tendrils that link off of building 10 MIT is this thing called the infinite quarter uh, because Boston uh, Cambridge is, uh, is, is known to be quite cold. Um, people don't want to go outside. So the way that they've architected the entire campus is by stringing all the buildings together so that you can walk pretty much all the way around campus. Um, something like a couple of miles worth of walking room um, without going outside. Excellent. Tim, thank you very much for, for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking. Bert, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We've touched on smart building technology before, and it's not something that's going to disappear. If you're at the start of this journey, remember that much of this technology is designed for the retrofit market. It can also be daunting deciding where to start and what offers the best ROI, etc. But with ESG agendas rising to the fore of investors' priorities, and companies such as Tim's offering COVID-19 building solutions, there's two very obvious places to start. The barriers to entry are getting increasingly less expensive, so why not start now? As ever, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do recommend the show to a friend or colleague. It's hugely appreciated. Until next time, thank you for listening.